Kinder, Küche, Kirche. Deus, Patria e Familia. From the Nazi party of the 1930s to today's Brothers of Italy, the family has long been the sustaining myth of fascism. The family is a community in which everyone has their God-ordained rank, where some are born to lead and others to serve, a useful fantasy when it comes to creating a factory, an army, or a colony. It is where racial supremacies are upheld. Think of the anti-miscegenation laws in Jim Crow America or apartheid South Africa. Yet despite knowing this, many on the left will defend the family to their dying breath, or at least they won't spend much time critiquing it. If we as leftists can just about imagine a world without prisons, a world without family seems unthinkable. What are you suggesting? That I murder my grandma? Abolish my children? There are good reasons for this defensiveness. As well as being the site where whiteness is reproduced, the family has also provided marginalized people with a haven from oppressive social forces. Hence why family separation plays such a key role in global border regimes. Still, many have begun once again to question whether it's possible to create a different kind of world out of family units. And so, after a 30-year hibernation, during which the family colonized much of queer and black activism, neutralizing radical traditions by welcoming them into the fold of nuclear normativity, family abolitionism is making a comeback. Among those leading the charge is one Dr. Sophie Lewis. Sophie is a utopian thinker. Her first book, Full Surrogacy Now, offers a critique of our current system of commodified surrogacy, before making a wild proposition. How about we fully communize gestational labor, up to and including ectogenesis, growing babies outside of wombs? Her new book, Out Now with Verso, takes this argument to its logical conclusion. Abolish the family. Sophie Lewis, welcome to Navarra FM. Hi Rivka, it's great to be here. So obviously politics doesn't need uh, an origin story, but you briefly touch in your book uh, about your far from happy nuclear family within a few pages of the book's opening. Um, Would you find it helpful to talk to us a little bit about the kind of family you may have had and how that informed your own uh, politics of family abolition? Um, And maybe also how you know, those experiences um, and and your politics in turn informed the decisions that you've made about your own kinship and kith kind of relations. Sure. Um, I ha- wrote a tiny bit in uh, Full Surrogacy Now about this moment that I sort of remembered all of a sudden quite a long time into the process of researching this topic, which I suppose I, you know, I, I could, I didn't know necessarily why I might be drawn to it, but it suddenly came back very vividly. Um, this, this conversation where it, somewhat in the manner of the Caucasian chalk circle, uh, by Brecht, I'm sort of asking, uh, my father from the back seat of the family car, you know, wouldn't you obviously still, love me, love us, me and my brother, if you found out that we were, you know, genetically, biologically, the offspring of the milkman. I think this was in reference to a piece of, you know, um, film or a play that we had just seen. Um, 
And I was just asking it rhetorically. I thought it was quite obvious what the answer should be. Um, but there was this kind of sickening silence um, in which I sort of understood uh, that that for my dad, it really was quite quite a lot to do with his authorship in, you know, terms of blood and gene and seed um, of us that determined his love in his mind. Um, and I think this was quite a traumatic moment. Um in my childhood. More generally speaking, yeah, there was unhappiness. Um, uh, the question of happiness and unhappiness is, is ha has a complex relation to politics, I think. I'm certainly not um, interested in the sort of colonial utopianism that hopes for a, a state of pure happiness that one can design a sort of um, a place where there would be no more unhappiness, no more conflict, no more assholes, you know. Um, that's not how I see it. And I'm actually really influenced by Ursula K. Le Guin's take on happiness and unhappiness in this essay she has called Happy Families, where she turns the supposition that we maybe have all heard that, you know, all, uh, or at least it's a commonly quoted thing from Tolstoy, the opening line, um, all happy families, I'm going to butcher it now, but yeah, you know, <laughs> um, all happy families are uh, alike and it's the unhappy ones that are different from one another and unique and therefore sort of literarily interesting perhaps um and and Le Guin suggests that maybe it's actually happiness that is the the thing we should be more intellectually interested in and that she sort of very uh, ironically says that uh, families can in fact be happy for very long and she's sort of dry here she's like for, for as long as a day a week you know that production of happiness is what she thinks is sort of ephemeral magical and skillful um and it's and, and my family certainly had uh happiness sometimes I think on the whole the isolation of uh my mother who was not, um, a, you know, a, a quote unquote housewife, you know, homemaker, stay at home mother, but was overwhelmed by the double shift, um, was pretty plain to me as a child. There was, you know, there was, um, yeah, there was a lot of unhappiness basically, <laughs> um, for reasons that I found to be quite sort of structural. I think just, uh, too much is being asked of too few, sort of psychically and materially in terms of the labor of the private nuclear household. And I mean, this is an upper middle class expatriate household. Um, I've also had experience of sort of literally a, a mother-in-law, right? I'm not, uh, I haven't boycotted marriage. I needed a visa. I've got experience of in-laws who are extremely bought into a kind of almost religion of, um, uh, you know, legal relatives, blood relatives, family trees, um, which I find quite anthropologically interesting to, to look at, especially given the the immense amount of trauma uh, and the good reasons why you might imagine that some people, for reasons of child sexual abuse or neglect or things that have happened in their childhood where family has really failed them, might encourage them to to buck against the the sort of the supremacy of of family as mm -hmm. a value, mm -hmm. but in fact perhaps leads them. Um, you know, on the contrary, to to double down really hard into it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned just now um, your marriage, and I'm interested in like whether you've made particular choices about how you set up your kind of community, um, your kind of home. You know, yeah, right to the kind of most intimate kind of parts of your your home in a way that is informed by your politics, or whether actually, you know, like 
we'll talk about later, it's quite difficult to defy on an individual level the the constraints of family. You just mentioned visas now. We don't we have marital visas. We don't have friendship visas as as of yet. Yeah. Well, um, I sometimes say that abolishing the family is not something you should try at home, kids. Um, it's not really something that I see as beginning inside uh, the families that exist in the present. Um, that, that, that's maybe a frustrating answer because a lot of people want to know how you um, might reconfigure the relationships inside um, literally the, the, the actually existing family. Um, the good or the bad news is that I sort of think um, the kernels, the first steps of abolishing the family exist in, you know, insurgency, sort of the protest kitchen, the experience of um, communizing care in the context of a, a mass movement, um, beginning to understand what it might mean to um, care for one another non-privately. Um, however, <laughs> I don't want to completely, you know, evade your question. Um, uh, I think the idea that there is, you know, there is no right life in the wrong world or whatever uh, is can be overdone. There's this, there's, I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to ethically absolve myself of, of, you know, thinking about how to configure my households to the extent that I have control over it. I, you know, yeah, I'm non-monogamous. I like to prioritize friendships uh, as much as uh, I like to think about how, <laughs> you know, friendships are as important as any other type of bond. I'm interested in having relationships with with children. Um, uh, in general, you know, there seems to be quite an entrenched sense in which, um, you know, adults don't talk to children unless there's a specific professional or, um, you know, legal reason why why they should. Um, and I'm trying in my life to to, to, to cultivate relationships with, with children in my community, just, just as friends, you know? Um, and I would say, yeah, that's about the extent of it. I have <laughs> two cats that I'm obsessed with. Um, two? Uh, I thought it was just Barnacle. You know what? Um, Barnacle takes up all the limelight and I'm, I'm extremely guilty about this. Um, there is, <laughs> there is an older cat called Robespierre. Um, oh. <laughs> they're sisters, uh, I guess. <laughs> Although I've imposed that family model on them, haven't I? Yeah, they're <laughs> kiff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it, yeah, but there's nothing, there's nothing revolutionary about my household setup, yeah. Rivka. <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. You're not, no brownie points were deducted um, in the making of this podcast. Um, you mentioned briefly, just as you came in today, that um, you've received a lot of anti-Semitic abuse um, for your work. And I think you know, that says something very interesting about what the family means, um, both in the kind of structures of capitalism and structures of kind of racial capitalism specifically. Um, and so can you maybe kind of elaborate on this idea that we often hear that, yeah, the the family is the basic unit of capitalism? I suppose there are two questions there. The, the uh, Well, maybe they're related. You're, you're right. The anti-Semitic abuse is fascinating, I think, because um, I'm not, I'm not Jewish, um, but by marriage, actually, I, I suppose you could say I am and matrilineally, actually, technically I, I, I am, although I found that out late in, in life. So I, you know, I am not, um, Jewish in a sense, although I really don't want to say on the public stage, you know, uh, I'm not Jewish, direct your, you know, rage about the destruction of the white race at the right, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to say that, especially um, because of my um, my deep, intimate 
uh, and political commitments um, to Jewish liberation and sort of anti-Zionist, uh, you know, Jewish communism as I as it is practiced in my in my community in quite beautiful, creative, and, and inspiring ways. But um, it is fascinating to me that my um, you know association with um, yeah uh, abolition of the family is taken explicitly to be um part of the yeah the contamination the undermining the sort of conspiratorial like destruction of um uh, yeah the, the white ethno state mm-hmm. um and yeah and that any connection i might have with jewishness only confirms this um this basic uh content of my of my politics. So this is something that needs to be theorized quite carefully. There's a wonderful essay in Invert Journal about the association between, um, you know, for example, uh, trans femininity and Jewishness in the Nazi imagination with reference to uh, the concept of um, abstraction, which gets very, you know, we can look at this in terms of the truncated critique of capitalism that fascism mounts that gets very nerdy quite fast but there are certain yeah there are certain easier to understand ways i think in which the anti-semitic worldview uh considers um specifically gender and sexuality related deviance to be the sort of um anti-reproductive uh assault on on um their eugenic future. So, you know, anything that I'm saying about the family is automatically seen as Jewish by virtue of being an attack on right reproduction Mm -hmm. and capitalist continuity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, I think, a really beautiful way of, yeah, synthesizing these two ideas. But so, I mean, to what extent then do you think, I mean, a lot of your work is very kind of utopian. And as you say, don't try this at home, kids. It's it's not kind of going to happen um in an overnight way and and certainly can't necessarily be just realized through individual transformation. But um, to what extent do you think that the abolition of the family then precedes any other demands that we might make in um, kind of in service of a more equal society? You know, we don't see, for example, family abolition or family abolitionist type demands being made by, you know, the major um, sort of campaigns of the left. Um, We'll come on to that a little bit more in a minute. But how much do you think we can achieve um, in, you know, towards a more equal society without thinking about the family unit? Let's talk for a second about what, um, what the content of family abolitionist politics in the now is. And then maybe that can help us, you know, think about whether, whether we need family abolition as a sort of starting point mm-hmm. uh, or, or whether it, we should think about it another way. I, so, in the same way that um, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore likes to talk about prison abolition as creation and building primarily, um, I, I like to start there. You know, if we were to burn down all the prisons today, we wouldn't have abolished prisons, which isn't to say we shouldn't burn down all the prisons today, but that wouldn't have been prison abolition. It would mm. be something else uh, on the way, perhaps, or who knows. But the point of abolition is actually to build the world in which the prisons aren't needed mm-hmm. and the the promise of um, justice that the criminal justice system currently promises to human beings is actualized in in, in reality. That the promise of freedom and justice is actually 
um, created for the first time. So it's sort of turned inside out, preserved, transformed, destroyed. And the family is this kind of promise of care that um, its technology, you know, the private nuclear household, is not delivering. And so rather than start with the relationships that we think of as family in the present and try to sort of, you know, liberate them, you know, uh, sure, I, I think, fine, definitely try and think about how to be comradely rather than proprietary towards, you know, the people you think of as your children, you know, your parents, your kin. But that's not where we begin. I think we begin by thinking about all the infrastructures of provision mm. and nurture mm -hmm. that um, currently almost like don't exist at all in the public realm or the common um and we we build those up so that people don't need aren't sort of blackmailed into depending to such an enormous material extent on the family, and that's how you start to unsettle both psychically and materially the mm -hmm. family mm -hmm. as this natural place where people are manufactured and therefore where they belong and there could be no other way. Um, so let's think about you know free twenty four seven sort of universal like horizontally organized. <laughs> child care, maybe with um, children's democratic participation in that um, in that sort of, you know, educational, anti-educational process. Let's think about the provision of food um, for free to people in common kitchens. Let's think about, you know, free housing. Let's think about free transport. It all sounds very bread and butter, doesn't mm -hmm. it? But mm -hmm. these are the things that help people, um, you know, meet their needs, you know, mobility needs, perhaps therapy needs, you know, um, care needs, um, bodily, biophysical needs mm -hmm. um, outside of uh, kinship responsibility, which is not to say that they shouldn't be met there. It can feel really nice, obviously, to meet those needs in the bosom of one's, you know, family. Um, but family abolition, I think, is, is perhaps first, if not necessarily ultimately, there might be an ex extra level of sort of negation that might that might be required, but it, I think we begin by taking pressure off. Mm -hmm. We might, we take pressure off the family and then see, and then see how far towards aboli abolishing it we've, we've got, I yeah. guess. Interesting that you talk about pressure off because I'm thinking a lot about pressure on and whether the pressures that are being put on the nuclear family at the moment might itself be creating a generation of family abolitionists. You know, we published a story at Navar on Navarra.com the other week um, that cited this stat that, um, Childcare for a child under two in England currently mm. averages around two hundred and twenty-five pounds a week, I saw that. which is like what most people get paid. Mm -hmm. Like that's a, that's like a salary for a lot of people. Um, and obviously, we know um, for middle-class kind of families, um, like I grew up in, certainly um, au pairs, um, which did previously, um, you know, form the kind of basis a lot of child of a lot of childcare for many people, and were was a more like affordable um, type of childcare has been cut off. That that visa route has been cut off by Brexit, so we're we're getting to this place where the family is in a corner. Mm -hmm. Like you know, you can't afford childcare, you can't um, have affordable kind of um, live-in au pairs, for example. Um, and we'll talk more about live-in au pairs and the yeah. the the commu the nuclear family commune um, a bit later. But um, do you think that the kind of fact that the family is becoming um, impractical, unaffordable, maybe for mm. for many people who 
who were born into thinking um, that it was their kind of right, similar to home ownership, and obviously home ownership forms part of the nuclear family, uh, might itself like create a generation of people who divest from it? Or do you think that it will just create loads of miserable people who who are committed to nuclear family but uh, are Mm. failing at it? Well, that's perfectly put. Um, and I think maybe the answer is both. <laughs> it's it's definitely creating both. I mean, the Melinda Cooper opens her wonderful book, Family Values, by pointing out that the family has never not been in crisis and that this kind of sense that um, it's impossible for, you know, or young people's sense that it is really difficult uh, or perhaps undesirable uh, to get into uh, family making that's that's a long story, which is not to say that there isn't a specificity of this current moment and a true crisis. <laughs> I think that's also the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, there are, I think, quite a lot of alarmist, but sometimes quite sort of well-taken sociological reports on people's, you know, literal inability uh, and therefore, you know, also uh, non-attempt, you know, to get into householding, uh, you know, mortgage aspiration or the rest of it. Um, and we, you know, we sometimes get quite like exoticizing and xenophobic framings of people like, you know, generational, um, exodus, you know, like Japan, what are the youth doing in Japan? They're not, you know, they're not even dating or or whatever. There's this, I think a huge anxiety amongst, um, Western sort of millennials and boomers about whether the young are, having sex enough. It's it's a strange sort of um, obsession, I think, really. Um, And I think think this comes down to eugenic and nationalist anxiety. Um, Mm -hmm. Whether there is a, 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 yeah, a creative and potentially, you know, utopian um, impetus being created as well. Yeah, I do see something like that. I do see people like, especially in the context of where I live in the US, having just, you know, overturned Roe versus Wade, the totally um, pathetic and inadequate existing provision for the right to stop doing gestational labor, as I like to to frame it as. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think people are uh, putting some, making you know, making some connections in their heads between the sort of forced care that they are um, conscripted into by the market and by the state in private nuclear households. They're beginning to see how much free labor is just being extracted from our lives for the purposes of capital accumulation. And they're beginning to see, wow, you know, if I if I get pregnant, I can't even, you know, uh, I'm not allowed to stop <laughs> caring for this fetus. Um, you know, fuck this. Yeah, I think a, a new kind of cycle of struggle does seem to be around the corner. I can't guarantee anything, obviously, but there is a lot of, um, you know, pandemic-born frustration, boredom, um, you know, uh, despair, uh, a, a kind of sense that people need to grieve what has not yet been grieved in a mm. mass way. Mm-hmm. And therefore, as well, that people need to, you know... Uh, help one another Mm -hmm. recover and that sort of thing is comradeliness in practice that kind of thing starts to break down um, the very isolated and exclusive sorts of um, life ways that were incubated Mm -hmm. um, 
sometimes, you know, among among couples and so on, mm. under quarantine and under lockdown. I, that's an optimistic spin on it. I think you're asking the right question, and it's what I've got my eye on as well. So mm-hmm. we'll, well, you see. heard it here first. <laughs> when the post-pandemic revolution happens, it was first on Navarro FM. Um, just briefly on the pandemic, I wasn't going to ask about it because I feel like it's the set question. Sure. But I... Do you think that the pandemic did expose the kind of ridiculousnesses of the nuclear family? I'm thinking in particular of that moment where you couldn't get a family member into um, care for your kids, but you could get uh, paid um, yeah. childcare. Um, and obviously we had the f- family um, kind of bubbles and, and and so on. And like there were countries that sort of tried to be more, be m- more realistic about people's kind of kith and kinship relations. I think it was the Netherlands who introduced like fuck buddies, mm-hmm. like official fuck buddies um, during lockdown. But there was this kind of like insanity about the pandemic and the kind of legal frameworks that it necessitated that exposed how we organize our societies around nuclear families. Absolutely. No, I mean, (laughs) yeah, uh, you know, and domestic violence um, shelters were reporting, you know, uh, astronomical upticks in you know, emergency calls, people, when you, you know, dictate as a question, you know, you intensify the the existing diktat that, you know, you as a, as a person on a specific territory pretty much belong with uh, family. You know, that's where, that's where the, you have any business being, you know, almost exclusively really. Um, and it's certainly where you are going to have to be in an, in a state of emergency, in an epidemiological emergency. This doesn't really make sense um, for all sorts of reasons that I've sort of published about, Mm. but it also doesn't make sense um, for the simple reasons that, you know, women's liberationists 50 years ago used to bang on about all the time and which I think mainstream feminism doesn't really bang on about, which is that, you know, like the family is where you're infinitely most likely to get raped and battered and molested and also, um, as you know, as a sidebar, like extorted or um, defrauded, when a woman's money goes missing, it's always her boyfriend and it's always her fiance. Um, this is apparently just statistically mm. the case. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. saying, you know, go to your family. Uh, stay there. Um, this it used to be extremely common knowledge that that's that that's a lie, right? That the haven and the sanctuary of kinship is is none such. Um, and and I think that story has been um, lost, right? That 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 common sense. Um, and in fact, it's been entirely reversed because we don't even need to sort of tell children. Uh, or women about stranger danger anymore because it's once again the uh, the norm. I think to assume that the places that you're in danger are um, out in the world among strangers. You mm-hmm. know, um, regardless of the statistical evidence that that's that's the, not the case. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think people being sort of pushed into their their legal homes and their, and into the arms of their legal kin and with very little recourse uh, was was educational. You know, I think people did start to see, wow, this isn't working. 
You mentioned kind of the political backsliding um, in in the politics of of, of the family, um, and I think maybe we saw this a bit in practice um, in December last year when Verso, your publisher of both your last and and current most recent book, uh, posted on their Instagram a, a cross stitch, I think it was, um, with with the title of your book on it, "Abolish the Family," and and there was just this like you know, momentarily viral response to it, mostly very critical. Um, why Why do you think the, the idea of family abolition is, as you say, scoffed at by many people, including on the anti-capitalist left? Um, I almost feel like reading out that bit in my book where I sort of reel off all of the objections to abolishing the family that I am extremely compelled by. I, I do not mock these responses. I think they make a lot of sense. Um, uh, I, I'm very fluent, I think, in um, the sorts of concerns that one might raise to a slogan like abolishing the family. Um, and I talk about how uh, potentially violent it seems to raise a slogan like that in a context of, you know, um, the destruction of Palestinian families by the Zionist state or the destruction of indigenous kinship systems by the settler colonial state in North America or, you know, the destruction of black um, families as they are, as they are called, right? Uh, including <laughs> by many sort of, um, you know, black radicals. The, the word family is polysemic, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so although there are some theorists who have suggested that, you know, the black family, a little bit like um, the queer family actually, could be seen as a sort of um, oxymoron in the specific historic context of the US. Mm. Um, of course, it's also the case that people talk in, in important political ways about the destruction of black families by the US state, right, under white supremacy, you know, the, yeah. the child protective services system, the foster care industry. These are um, systems that, for instance, Dorothy Roberts is constantly showing are um, shattering bonds. Um, and yeah, like, of course, in that context, why, how could you possibly say, you know, yeah, <laughs> abolish the family? It sounds awful, right? Um, in fact, aren't we campaigning on the streets? Any decent person is, uh, including me, you know, marching under a banner uh, of, you know, keep families together, stop family separation when it comes to migrant justice and uh, fighting the border um, or the, yeah, the immigration and customs enforcement apparatus in the United States where I live. So, yeah, I think my job in this pamphlet or book is is partly to sort of, uh, to be the, one of the family abolitionists in the 21st century who sort of maybe um, comes first and takes quite a lot of the flack and has a lot of disclaimers, almost like I'm the guy who comes out front and goes, yeah, 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 I know what you're going to say. Uh, don't, you know, don't worry. And then, you know, others will come and, 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 and say other things in other ways. But um, in fact, I think some of my comrades think I'm too conciliatory and too nice and too empathetic with people's like anxieties and alarm. You know, mm. it is sometimes seen um, as quite bad faith, uh, you know, to, to raise the kind of, um, the question of sort of uh, 
racism of family abolitionist politics uh some you know some of my comrades think it's 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 in bad faith right it, there's a sort of there's an idea that family abolitionist politics comes from the imperial core which it it just doesn't right and and so there's a self-centering mechanism there where sometimes you know perhaps white people are really worried that it is racist to talk about the family in this way um which is projection you know mm -hmm. the anxiety comes from all of us i think this is this is true you know nobody escapes the privatization of care under capitalism. None of us. Um, none of us escapes the Oedipal story uh, of how our psyches are manufactured. You know, the anxiety is mine too. <laughs> um, uh, it's all of ours. I don't think it's actually possible on some level. You know, Kathy Weeks talks about it being perhaps literally impossible, uh, not only to imagine fully what um, humanity after the family might feel and look like, but it might not even be possible to desire it uh, in the now. Mm. It might not be fully desirable by us yet. And that doesn't mean that we can't, you know, speculate creatively or orient ourselves towards a world in which, you know, uh, love is, is, is given the maximum chance, mm -hmm. you know, to, to flourish and to become something more than what it is. In, in under capitalism, this is the the sort of utopian dream of red love, red love that Alexandra Kollontai, the left Bolshevik dissident, raised historically amongst others. Um, so you know, I, I think I'm when the left or some people on the left um, rail against slogans like "abolish the family," I'm actually very understanding and and empathetic. Mm. Um, I I, I um, I'm sometimes surprised that the history of family abolitionism has been so so effectively erased and that people have not heard of this. And, you know, if people are interested in having a fight about whether or not Marx and Engels said it, um, I, I, we can do that. And, you know, I will win that fight. Um, I, I know all of the ins and outs of it and the, you know, the ways that they meant the bourgeois family and how there is, in fact, no other family but the bourgeois family. However... I don't think it's a particularly convincing <laughs> argument that Marx and Engels said it. I think it's much more interesting that concrete movements of, for example, you know, um, decolonial and black radicalism have been, you know, uh, putting this into practice for a very long time and using it as a, one of the sort of center uh, pieces of, of, of their thinking. Um, so, yeah, like... <laughs> Sorry, that's a very long answer. No, it was a, a great answer. And and I want to pick up on something you said in it, which um, was this idea of red love, because I think um, it unlocks a little bit um, so, uh, something else you were saying, which is it's impossible to um, imagine and therefore desire um, a family or um, a kind of world after the family. Um, but actually, one of the ways that we might start to do this is imagining how it would feel, right, to, to not be attached to the nuclear family. Because I think much of the anxiety and the attachment to the nuclear family is driven by a kind of fear of, of, of feeling um, abandoned, mm -hmm. you know, um, a fear of not having strong attachments, of a feeling of kind of loneliness and, and lostness in the world. And I think... Um, 
imagining how it might feel to to be held by a, a fabric which isn't familial is kind of helpful. So maybe you could just talk briefly about Alexandra Kolontai and uh, you know her idea of, of of red love and how maybe you imagine it to feel. Yeah, my little potted history um, starts, you know, with with uh, the utopian socialist Charles Fourier in, in France, and then talks about Marx and Engels and the moment of the um, of the Communist Manifesto and and all the anarchists and uh, communists who were talking about family abolition at that time. And then um, I uh, I skip on to Colin Tai, who um, was this extraordinary figure. I am always amused at her non-inclusion in the sort of mainstream feminist lists of, you know, historic girl bosses. This was literally a fabulous femme who was an ambassador for one of the major world powers on, you know, an ambassador, a diplomat. And and you would think that that would count for something, but, you know, she's not sufficiently known, um, is she? And, and, and at the time she was quite scandalous because of her free love, her, uh, her very sort of promiscuous, um, and passionate and, and sort of inappropriate and much frowned on and much kind of smeared in the press at the time. Sexuality, um, you know, uh, very, unapologetic cougar. <laughs> These are not the important things about her. The important things about her, in a sense, uh, uh, perhaps are, are her writings more than her her lived her lived life. She was, in fact, very, like, at uh, odds with herself, very, like, disappointed. Uh, this is interesting, I find, the tension in her writing. She was quite cross with herself for giving over so much of her life to love. Um, she felt that um, her love could perhaps be voluntarily, through force of will, directed towards, you know, the, the global proletariat rather than, you know, um, delicious men, you know, in, um, and, and that's, that's really interesting in and of itself. It really speaks to what we've been talking about in terms of... Um, yeah, you know, don't do this at home, kids. Uh, in fact, if you tried to abolish the family or abolish your, uh, you know, your relationships somehow without abolishing capitalism, you'd have a you'd have a nightmare. You know, so this is something you can almost see in her in her journals, in her letters. This tension, this frustration that you can't you can't really. Um, you know, abolish the family on your own. But she was really interested in in um, how the Bolshevik apparatus could help the proletariat free itself once and for all from capitalism by providing the sorts of care infrastructures that children need to be um, uh, liberated from um, exclusive parentality, from being the property, in a sense, uh, in their own minds, as much as anything else, of two parents who are their authors. She really wanted to uh, destroy capitalism at its very root, as she saw it, which was the sort of property love that the property form in the in a material sense um, uh, creates in our in our in our love. So the mm-hmm. way that we love one another, she said, has a a real relationship to the the property form. Mm-hmm. We don't yet know what it would be like to love in a world in which private property has been abolished, and so. She wanted to try and get towards that horizon of red love by, uh, yeah, by by making sure that children were um, cared for by by all, um, and and you know biological parents would definitely, if they wanted to, be be centrally involved. 
but you know the the private nuclear household would be no more um in that sense and 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 lenin was sort of pretty convinced by her writing he said but he he also uh dismissed it and said that if you know um we we could we could abolish the family perhaps later on for now we need to strengthen it actually we need to strengthen the working class like russian family in a fascinating moment in you know some years later 50 years later the the sort of extraordinary sort of problematic <laughs> uh, Shulamith Firestone says, um, you know, fleetingly in the dialectic of sex, um, that the reason the Russian revolution failed was because of its uh, failure to abolish the family. She doesn't mention, uh, Firestone doesn't mention Kolontai by name, but it's this uh, really titillating sort of, uh, uh, yeah, momentary uh, analysis. <laughs> Not to say that I'm with Lenin, (laughs) but um, there is something really interesting. It's kind of a bit of a lateral move. I wouldn't say that um, I'm agreeing with Lenin, but there is something interesting in that your first book, Mm. Full Surrogacy Now, which was published by Verso in 2019, does this really interesting thing where it takes one of the main types of labor performed um, in order to sustain the myth of the self-contained nuclear family, um, surrogacy, obviously, which many nuclear families kind of... um, instruct in order to 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 kind of like sustain themselves um and argues that it actually has radical potential surrogacy could be um you know a way to 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 undermine the nuclear family that you could completely communize gestational labor full surrogacy rather than no surrogacy um and that, that this could that this could kind of um, support family abolition. And I'm interested in how else you think um, the, the the kind of nuclear family might hold within it the seeds of its own destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, I've touched upon one of those just earlier, which is, you know, the um, childcare um, that like my family instruct, enlisted, for example, um, and that I effectively lived in a commune. There was a young woman living in my living with my family for for many of the years of my childhood. So, but we would have never described it as, as that. We would have described ourselves as a, a nuclear family. And yeah, I wonder whether we can exploit some of those um, some some of those kind of uh, yeah modes of labor or other 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 things to to sort of like destroy the nuclear family from within. <laughs> um, but, Maybe that was a bit dramatic. No, no, it's a great question. Um, I the way I see full surrogacy now, it's less about um what is currently termed surrogacy in the present than it is about gestational labor writ large, so unpaid and paid forms of human pregnancy and how those labors might potentially be conceptualized as um insurgent um, across the paid, unpaid sort of distinction um, because of things like, um, you know, the, the the very felt experience of children, you know, the products of gestational labor as not property, right? This, this sort of, uh, this way in which children assert themselves as um, not belonging in any meaningful sense to their you know, to their their makers, and certainly not being the sort of um, authorial uh, inscriptions of of any type of like exclusive uh, um, self replicating fantasy, right? Um, but surrogacy is fa- fascinating because it exists in the present as a fantasy of um, the functioning of proprietarian kinship. So surrogates are there to sort of step in; um, they're in the place of the proper body 
so-called, right? The imagined proper body, the the proper parent, um, and they they uh, they're, they're subordinate to that um, uh, that right reproductive um, uh, property function. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, as we know. Um, it's messier than that. And in a dystopian sense, we are the makers of one another biologically in, in a classed, colonized, um, massively hierarchized way across the face of the earth, right? All of these sort of surrogate laborers um, are pouring in uh, to, through the porous, in fact, boundaries of a, of a private nuclear household in the ruling class, um, sort of pouring in labors that are then uh, invisibilized almost instantly, or as Kathy Weeks puts it, kind of excised from the family photo, so that the, you know, the, the family can imagine itself as whole, when in fact it, it is always um, uh, being propped up mm-hmm. by by shadowy figures on the margins <laughs> who are in fact community, right? Mm-hmm. Who, um, but um, so that's the sense in which we were already the makers of one another in a way that pretty much sucks. <laughs> um, uh, um, but full surrogacy now in the prescriptive rather than descriptive sense would mean that not just, you know, we are the makers of one another, but also crucially, we have learned to act like it. Um, and that those relationships of, you know, co- productivity have kind of been actualized in some way. So surrogates, in a sense, have this paradoxical status, like they're always already there in in the private nuclear household. So there's nothing automatically radical about, um, yeah, (laughs) an au pair, you know, (laughs) because much as, you Mm -hmm. know, um, cheating and prostitution is sort of part and parcel Mm -hmm. of the... um, the the marriage institution right mm-hmm. um surrogacy is is already here everywhere um and 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 that was what i was trying to sort of philosophically get across like yeah. uh, impossibly turning this concept inside out on yeah. a communist horizon but that said you know yeah of course um you know experiences of you know what in the black feminist tradition is called other mothering, um, sort of mothering outside of um, the patriarchal institution of motherhood, I think does unsettle um, the, the the primacy mm-hmm. of um, capitalist parenthood, which is, after all, like a, a legal institution that sort of ensures that debt gets serviced, that class gets shored up via inheritance transgenerationally and mm-hmm. so on and so forth mm-hmm. um it does sort of unsettle that in 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 practice and in experience yeah. i think also i think the thing maybe i'm getting at i i completely agree there's nothing radical about having an au pair particularly in the world that we live in but that by drawing attention to it sort of a bit like wages against housework by drawing attention to the work that's being performed currently you sort of um show that the family is in crisis and that this has never been a self-contained kind of hermetically sealed institution and so why are we so attached to it um you know there isn't stability and security to be found in this we're in perpetual crisis as it is, why don't we instead convert that continual kind of change and um, remodeling into something that we design rather than something that we accept because we think that it promises us security when in fact it's constantly being undermined from within kind of thing. Absolutely. I think one thing that historically has been shown to really cause anxiety in um, the capitalist state or, or capitalist governments um, is when people, um, you know, on the 
blunt end of all sorts of relationships of marginalization and oppression and exploitation um, stop seeming to aspire so much to the wages of the private nuclear household, marriage and the family. So, for example, you know, there's this really fascinating history of um, the abolition of slavery in the United States resulting in uh, initially um, an attempt on the part of the state to limit the number of, you know, black families with a capital F that it would um, uh, register and and uh, legitimate, you know, thinking that people would try and flood in, <laughs> you know, to the institution of the family. And the, the opposite was the case. Um, people were like, nah, you know, we've actually grown quite skillful at um, making our kinship systems work on, under conditions of ultimate dehumanization. Um, uh, and I and and you know maybe there's nothing for us in in the bourgeois household mm-hmm. um, as a as a as a mode of doing life and humanity right and then the state sort of did a 180 and was like uh actually no no you're all gonna need to get married um, and we're gonna police that you know sexually uh, th- there was the sort of kernels of the 20th century practice much later of literally you know agents of the state coming into um, uh, single black women's uh, households and and literally like you know opening their drawers, um, trying to check whether there was a man ever in the house uh, uh, because if a man was in the house, then they weren't entitled to welfare. This was called the man in the house rule. There's a really interesting sort of dialectical history of sort of um, exclusion and inclusion of uh, racialized populations um, under settler colonialism and, and white supremacist capitalism into the, uh, the yeah, the, the order mm-hmm. of um, uh, familism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the response from, the, from below, in a sense, has always been quite bifurcated, uh, rightly so, because, you know, the family is at once where uh, people are, receive, you know, protection from... Um, the violence of the state. And it is where, in many cases, they receive some kind of respite from the the violence of the market and of mm. work, right? Um, and at the same time, you know, it's, it's always been appreciated by some <laughs> on, on the bottom of, of society's hierarchies that there is nothing for us there. There is, there is nothing to aspire to in the in the institution of the family. And so when pundits in the pandemic, like David Brooks um, and people even, you know, to the right of him who, who, who are happier to be much more explicitly racist than, than, than he is only sort of implicitly talking about the dysfunction um, of, uh, you know, unwed parenting, sort of quote unquote, sort of broken household structures. Um, you know, they're, they're basically in a tradition that is centuries long, you know, at this point of, of uh, imagining that, uh, yeah, that the, the cause of um, uh, working classness, proletarian identity is a failure to perform bourgeois kinship correctly um, in relation to the state when, it, when, of course, you know, if anything, um, you know, the, 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 the sense in which proletarians are outside of the family has been historically like enacted and to some extent you know cultivated on purpose because life is better actually mm-hmm. uh, outside yeah. of the family 
Yeah, it's interesting you give that example um, rather than the kind of uh, gay liberation example, yeah. um, which is kind of, I think, much more um, widely known probably sure. to one of our audience, which, you know, is this transition from, I think in your book, you cite Michael Bronsky talking about how gay liberation activists in the 1970s, I believe, wanted to, to, to one of their central demands was the liberation of children from the nuclear family and um, the kind of communization of child rearing. And that, that, I mean, interestingly, I think he says that some of those demands were a bit strange and that they um, sort of proposed that um, gay people might look after the children in the day and then they'd return to their family, their sort of like, you know, straight parents in the evening or something. Um, and so sometimes those demands are a bit like... Uh, not fully formed, let's say. Um, but obviously now we have a situation where um, the conservative government were the ones who, in the UK, at least, who introduced gay marriage. And we've had this kind of co-optation um, mm -hmm. of um, and, and sort of like neutralization, let's say, of like gay liberation efforts, um, particularly when it comes to kind of family abolition. Do you think this is sort of part of the reason for, um, I think you you call it, you sort of briefly mentioned it in this kind of quite heartbreaking way, the fact that family abolition had this lull between the 80s and sort of 2010s. Um, do you think that's that's partly why this sort of end of history, liberalism is fine, actually, let's all get on board with, you know, uh, marriage rather than demand something more radical? Yes, yes. Um, I think in a certain sense, um, the left today maybe could do with grieving not just what's just happened to us over the last three years, but even what happened 50 years ago in the sense that the liberatory and utopian potential of the long 60s was stomped into the dust, you know, uh, was stomped into the dust. And all of the the things that were thinkable um, in the early 70s um, became um, a matter of embarrassment and shame um, History was rewritten by the most um, bioconservative elements of, for example, women's liberation um, and gay liberation. Um, and so the history we receive is in many senses like a travesty of what of what was actually the case in the rich ecology um, of liberation uh, groups, some of which I wish had joined up together mm. and um you know, fused their horizons in a sense, gay liberation and, you know, Firestones, Red Stockings and so on would have been, you know, I think very powerful had they been able to join forces. Um, and and it, it makes me sad. <laughs> it seems, seems like a missed opportunity. But um, I don't, I, I think the left is almost um, too willing to look within uh, for reasons why the long 60s were crushed. Um, sure, perhaps, you know, perhaps we should extract lessons um uh, so that we can, you know, win next time. But um, I, I think it's also psychologically really challenging and therefore maybe worth um, getting better at to simply accept without cope <laughs> that, um, that, that one lost, that one was successfully defeated by the, 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 the armed violence of the state, right? And that doesn't, and w when I say, you know, without trying to reach for some kind of cope, I mean, um, without sort of going back and saying, oh, it was really dumb and naive and stupid to to imagine that we could abolish the family. We never did it. We never, you know, in fact, I never wanted that. Um, uh, which is what feminists said, you know, from Gloria Steinem to Barbara Ehrenreich, that the statement has been since the late 70s, feminists never attacked the family. 
And fine, you might you might decide to change direction, but I don't see why you feel the need to go and rewrite history because that is a lie. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, the end of history uh, stuff that you're talking about, I would also frame in terms of organized um, sort of oikonomical uh, sort of class war projects from the from the right, reimposing right reproduction. Um, and heterosexual reproductivity uh, on the population. So Anita Bryant, um, as much as anything else, right? The uh, and then you know in the context of the AIDS sort of Holocaust, um, like the, the, a real sense in which um, what what is unfortunately still sometimes considered a culture issue, like a culture war issue rather than a class war issue today, the sort of the alignment of queer life and pedagogy with uh, grooming and pedophilia, which is having a real sort of efflorescence right now in the in the most bloodthirsty possible way. You know, that was started off, I think, in the in the early 80s. And, the, um, and it was it has had really long lasting repercussions. Um, at the same time, of course, you know, the uh, the sort of transmission of um, gender order has been sort of coming apart, um, and and fascists today are lamenting, you know, the the sort of threat to civilization of uh, multiplicity of uh, uh, childhood and youth gender embodiment and sexual orientation, um, and and they're 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 sort of they're onto something there, you know, something has indeed um, been loosening about the sort of capitalist patriarchal order's ability to, you know, manufacture sort of uh, orderly children <laughs> to, to create the workforces of the future reproductively and procreatively. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the left is lagging in a sense in terms of its ability to affirm full-throatedly um, its opposition to that uh to that regime of right reproduction. And in fact, it somehow thinks, some some leftists seem to think that um, some horrible, bloodthirsty kind of triangulation is, is, is desirable, that throwing, you know, trans women under the bus and, you know, defining their... Um, their struggle as some sort of culture issue is uh, is is a, an acceptable or humane thing to do. I, I'm I'm horrified by this. You know, mm -hmm. I think the left should be seeing. Um, Clinic defense uh, for trans children, just like clinic defense for, you know, gestators who need an abortion as sort of central class war prerogatives right now. Yeah. 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 You mentioned children just there and like um, defending the rights of children. Earlier, you mentioned making children um, kind of democratically part of the the kind of systems that we we, we create in place of the nuclear family. Um, and, and actually, at the very beginning, you sort of tentatively, and I think it's interesting that it was difficult to kind of confidently say you want to have relationships with children um and 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 that obviously comes from what you also mentioned just then which is the effort from right-wing evangelicals in particular to synonymize homosexuality with pedophilia um but i suppose what i'm getting to and is this idea that the nuclear family similar to what you were saying earlier claims to be the place of safety actually the place of greatest threat claims to be the place where children are cared for best is actually deeply conceptualizes children as semi-human as not fully um autonomous beings um and can you can you talk a little bit more about how 
like the kind of the way that the nuclear family conceives of children and how that might need to change um you know if we you know how how family abolitionists might need to reframe children's personhood wow what a fascinating question i'm sort of hoping that there can be a lot more um uh you know, education and and discussion, just widespread throughout communities about um, uh, childhood as a fantasy versus you know children as a uh, an existing potentially political group. Um, critical childhood studies is a really interesting and vital field, which I believe um, the transphobic fascist right is attacking um, right now for the reason that it is asking really important scholarly questions about the relationship between the, you know, school to prison pipeline, for example, um, and the the sort of pedophile industrial complex uh, sort of uh, uh, biopolitical like project, you know, where children are securitized, um, segregated, um, privatized, um, you know, on the basis that there is this uh, sexual threat from uh uh, from from a, a vaguely kind of sinister, tacitly racialized sort of male presence uh, within, like a um, in, in society, thinking about children as this overdetermined sort of repository of like eugenic hopes for the future, and, and by eugenic, I also mean like capitalism's like desperate anxiety about its own like longevity, um, the the way that children in our society are basically put to work you know Malcolm Harris in his book Kids These Days mounts the case that kids are literally working when they go to school in the in the 21st century um uh and, and that at the same time paradoxically there's this kind of recognition that because children have uh, perhaps less of an obligation <laughs> to 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 do this work than adults do um who would starve otherwise, you know, because in capitalist society, we think it's okay to pretty much, you know, require people to sell their labor power if they don't want to be homeless or starve. I mean, there are some welfare things in place, but, you know, essentially that's, that's, that's an ethical idea that we've all signed on to that, you know, work, yeah, work or, or starve. And children's freedom from that relative, though it may be, is uh, envied, I think. And we've set that up on purpose. Viviana Selizer, the sociologist, talks about the transition historically from children as, um, you know, uh, cheap labor um, into a, a, a category um, that is on the threshold uh, of of formal labor. So is economically useless, um, but emotionally priceless. Um, and it's almost as though that um, that decision <laughs> to cast childhood in that light um, regulates our collective hatred of work. So we can sort of fantasize about childhood as this golden era, this golden age, um, at the same time as we pretend with the part of our brains that is you know signed up to the uh the supreme value of work um we can we can sort of denigrate childhood as only on the threshold of true personhood as sort of in a waiting room or a holding pattern or a zone that is sort of anterior to the real business of being alive and having a job and so that sort of schizoid character of our relation to children um i think is immensely political um in a work society 
you know, the way that we can simultaneously pity and envy children for not yet being full workers, even as we force them to practice being workers every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of similar to how we essentialize or, or, or how, um, you know, proponents of the nuclear family like to um, undermine relationships between adults and children as paedophilia in order to prevent the flourishing of intergenerational kind of like relations. And there's also something interesting happening and that happened to you specifically, not to uh, raise another uh, (laughs) moment from your social media past, where um, your relationship or kind of uh, parasocial relationship to an animal was, um, was, was, was described as as effectively as bestiality by uh, a, then I think a Washington Post columnist. Um, I think she's now at the New York Times called Elizabeth Brunig, um, who is supposedly on the kind of religious left. Um, I'm not sure many people here would consider her particularly left wing, but um, yeah. She, do you want to describe to us a little bit about what happened, the actual facts of the matter, and then maybe um, tell us a bit about why you think someone like Elizabeth Brunig would. Um, think about that relationship in that way oh my goodness <laughs> yeah I had I had uh, no intention of uh, provoking really I actually thought it was a fairly um, self-evident um, commentary that I was making uh, when I tweeted about a Netflix documentary about um, a relationship between a conservationist uh, white South African man and a, and an octopus um, I really enjoyed the documentary I also um, you know, always criticizing everything that I see in a kind of <laughs> literary analysis type of mode in which I was trained. It's as called an My Octopus Teacher, just for everyone listening, if you want to go and watch it. Very yes. good. My very uncontroversial take on this documentary, in my, uh, or what I thought was uncontroversial, was was that, yeah, there, there is eroticism and love. This is in the script. Um, the, the conservationist talks about his love for the octopus. However, I was pointing out that it is... Um, uh, quite sexy to be embraced by um, a, a creature who is essentially one big mucous membrane um, in the icy waters of the Atlantic. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, I, I, yeah, clearly I find octopuses sexy. Uh, it's not controversial to find octopuses sexy. <laughs> there are Eastern and Western traditions. Uh, the Western one, I suppose it's true, I, I later learned, is far more kind of sublimated about its attraction to the cephalopod. It's far more about horror. Uh, in the East, uh, as in, you know, Hokusai woodcuts about um, the dream of the fisherman's wife are far more explicitly like turned on. I was fascinated by the um, yeah uh, the the violence of the insistence that um, you know I I not imagine that erotic relations are possible between um, yeah humans and non humans you know I was told that I should think about my love for my adoptive cat. Uh, you know, who I rescued uh, from a, you know, at one day of age because she'd been rejected uh, and wasn't going to be, you know, made to live by the the, the, the mother cat, you know. And uh, I have a very, very intense relationship with this little creature. Um, and uh, I found the intensity of the confidence that people have that there is nothing erotic about that relationship quite surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, cats are fundamentally polymorphously perverse sort of pleasure demons who lie all over us purring um I don't I I find it quite peculiar that anyone could be 
you know, certain that everything is above board mm. in their relationship with a cat. I Have think, they met cats? Yeah. <laughs> Have you met a cat? I think this actually is, relates to what um, Amiya Srinivasan writes about in her essay for the LRB on bestiality and yeah. uh, sex with animals, um, which is kind of talking about um, how similar to the nuclear family, we have sex with animals all the time against their will. We're raping cows all the time in order to artificially inseminate and harvest milk from them. But when a dolphin wants to have sex with its, like, you know, um, zookeeper or whatever, we think that that's, like, absolutely demonic, you know, and, and, and like, be beyond reproach. Um, and so... And so there's a hypocrisy there, but there's also a denial of the full agency of the animal mm -hmm. and the and the other, mm -hmm. basically. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I will also say that there was a contingent of sort of perhaps liberal progressives, perhaps socialists, uh, uh, who, who deemed it quite, quote unquote, homophobic, uh, to use the word queer in connection with me perving on an octopus. Um and that basically speaks to the bifurcation that we've actually been speaking about between um, family abolitionist gay liberation and, uh, you know, homonormative marriage-oriented uh, gay rights struggle. My people who are legion today don't share sort of the, the ideal of uh, ordering sexuality uh, in inside the um, the trammels of reproductive um, proprietary yeah uh, propriety mm -hmm. um, so there's you know there is in fact something you know um, threatening and uh, boundless I think about collective human desire whether that's for um, red love whether that's for an end to alienated labor whether that's for communion with beings beyond our own species. Um, after all, there are many organisms um, that are not human inside our human bodies. Um, there is already communion at work, whether or not you want it. You know, it's to, um, that, 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 in a sense, yeah, is, is part of any uh, feminist or um, queer liberationist project worth its salt. Life is kind of too short, I think, um, uh, to 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 yeah to place our hopes in um, civilization. <laughs> <laughs> a good motto. So yeah, my penultimate question is about a very more more real and direct rather than parasocial relationship that you have with an animal, and this is Barnacle. Um, obviously, we've just found out that there's also Robespierre. We're breaking the news that Barnacle is not an only child. Um, but yeah, I, I know this, obviously, because I'm a nerd who follows you on multiple social media platforms that you adopted um, a kitten, I think, during lockdown. Um, and I'm interested in how the experience of um, parenting, I suppose, um, this this animal um, has maybe informed your your work, if at all. Gosh, um, this is a bit embarrassing. I, I Yeah, oxytocin really floods um, a body, doesn't it, when... Um, there's a sort of maternal intensity formed with a small creature um and it makes one lose one's head right i uh, i've i was 
kind of called out on it uh, by someone who follows my, you know, my writing about comradely and anti-proprietarian horizons for relations with children. You know, I, I sort of don't think uh, I'm sure whether people should say my kid, you know, or, or, or perhaps that's not something that we can change at the level of language. But I'm I'm sort of always pushing against these imaginaries that that conceive of of children as um, ours, as property. And 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 there we are, you know. Uh, here I, you know, I find myself, um, you know, as the the sort of exclusive-ish um, mother landscape of this, um, you know, little tiny neonatal reject uh, cat who 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 can't even shit or you know, without my help, because apparently mother cats lick the feces out of their young. Did you know this? So you have to emulate this with a, with a wet cloth. Um, so the intensity of that sort of dependence on me, you know, the way this, this little creature sort of slept in my armpit and uh, probably never received the sorts of socialization that a mother cat perhaps instills. I think I think cat parenting might be quite sort of whacking forward um you know sort of like don't you know um don't don't bite me don't attack other things be afraid you know uh, I didn't I didn't do any of these things because I don't know how I don't sort of speak cat per se so I have this feeling that um Barnacle thinks she is whatever species I am and um that if she ever got outside she would run straight up to a moving car and try to sort of hit it on the nose. Um, and, and this is terrifying. Um, I'm completely at her, you know, disposal. Um, she completely owns me. Um, I don't sleep. (laughs) 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 She opens my eyelids, uh, when she's bored of them being closed. Um, someone send help. Um, I am extremely <laughs> flooded with oxytocin and completely aware of the difficulty of imagining motherhood um, in a kind of truly kind of communized way. I mean, there are deep sort of, I think, hormonal and, uh, you know, material reasons why um, our our affection for one another becomes um, sort of hungry, you know, not liable to welcome uh, challenges to its uh, apparent exclusivity. I will also say that, you know, the sorts of uh, mythologies about motherhood that I'm discussing as partly like biological or endocrinal or so on are also like, you know, obviously learned. Mm. And uh, we, you know, we love the way we love partly because of the stories about love that we tell and that we are told from very, very young age. Um I also think think that mothering is something that a lot of people sort of need so desperately and giving the sort of mothering that we need can be a way of um, um, fulfilling that craving. Um, I think my biological legal mother, for example, was quite unmothered. And so I, uh, having been not very well mothered by her in turn, was kind of seeking to mother her a little bit, especially on her deathbed. Um, and it is uh, it is difficult and sometimes damaging to be in a sort of reversed mothering relation with someone who is supposed to be our caregiver but requires a sort of type of care um, perhaps from, from you, you know. Um, I, I, I think all of this is 
a bit of a mess. <laughs> I think everybody <laughs> deserves many mothers and that only through organizing mothering in a more abundant way can we perhaps get beyond what, yeah, Adrian Rich called the patriarchal institution of motherhood, mm. motherhood, against which mothering labor perhaps creatively pushes up against um, and starts to erode. But that's not to say that um, any of this is easy. I think it was quite a good point in a, in a discussion of Abolish the Family in um, Refinery 29, is it? Um, recently where, um, it, you know, there were some questions raised about whether regardless of the way we organize our intimate spheres, our households, our legal configurations, in, um, that, that uh, being needy is going to be tricky, that it's going to be you know, unpleasant <laughs> to a greater or lesser extent, regardless of how we organize life, um, to be sort of hungry for care, needy for care, um, and so on. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's something interesting though about your relationship with your cats. Um, I'm, it feels wrong to single out Barnacle now, <laughs> now that we know that there are two, but, um, in that, it kind of undermines what you what you described earlier, I think, as like the proper body and that like you weren't the proper body to be looking after um, at least Barnacle as a as a newborn kitten. Um, and, you know, you, you but by giving the care that he needed, um, he 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 loves you. But maybe there's something also interesting in that cats famously, maybe not Barnacle specifically because of the relationship that you've kind of had with him since he was born, but um, will abandon caregivers if they don't give them the care that they need. Mm. That like, you know, I know people whose cats have like run away mm. and like found a new home and there's a contingency to like cat love as well. It's not um, perhaps like the kind of dog type love, the undying love um, that people sort of like um, mm -hmm. characterize dogs as having. Oh yeah, that's a good point. No, I mean, so uh, Robespierre or, or Robbie, they're both female. They both have these kind of um, guy names, I guess, Barney and Robbie. But R R Robbie was, I suppose, as far as I no, I don't know anything about her, her her background because she was adopted too. But at an older age, she was she was parented by a, I think a cat. This is why they're almost different species. I think um, they're you know Barney Barney was uh, yeah is is a sort of humanoid uh, creation, which is why unfortunately she gets all of my attention um, because Robbie doesn't really need me in that way. It actually comes back to the those not chosen. We are ultimately fated to take care of. Uh, um, of one another, imperfect and unpleasant as we are. Um, and and the, the thing about chosen family as a framework is quite simply that it doesn't account for those not chosen. Um, so sort of critical as I might be of elements of the, you know, the, the Cuban sort of national project, um, I, I am, you know, uh, convinced that the scale of ambition has to be when it comes to family abolitionism, um, you know, the, the provisioning of those that nobody actually wants to provision or hang out with. Like this is what, you know, currently uh, is organized in society in, in a, in a desperately sort of uh, irrational and, and structurally violent way. Those that people don't want to take care of uh, via the very privatized technology of the nuclear family tend to be, you know, um, uh, you know, non-neurotypical, disabled or trans or gender non-conforming, queer, 
youth, for example, those are the people who are dispossessed most often statistically from the family. Um, and so they are not chosen for reasons that are kind of self-evidently um, despicable, right? But, um, you know, I think in any uh, critical utopia, there are people who, um, you know, don't, aren't fun to care for or hang out with. They're just going to be like dickheads that still deserve everything, just as just as everybody does. Um, and so family abolitionism has to be thinking about how to create a world um, in, in which, you know, care is available truly to all, you know, to all. One of the only places to re really be pushing forward with a project of family abolition is Cuba. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I don't know whether you saw mm -hmm, um, of course, of course. in September, there's this new family code that a super majority of Cubans voted in favor of, um, which not only kind of legalized same-sex marriage, but it also introduces all sorts of new family abolitionist practices like giving step-parents guardianship rights, protecting grandparent-grandchild communication in the event of a divorce, and um, recognizing, I suppose, most interestingly to you, the rights of surrogates or what they call solidarity gestators. Um, and I'm interested just to close this discussion um, in whether you can point us to um, places, whether that's states or autonomous communities or just people you know, um, that are doing some of this work in a really interesting um, and innovative way. The New Family Code is um, a spectacular uh, and wonderful bit of good news for you know, which is which is a breath of fresh air in itself. I think to those of us in in um, the globe, you know, in uh, the UK and America. Um, since I have a book called Full Surrogacy Now about gestational labour and its, um, you know, present day partial commodification in uh, deeply sort of dystopian and uh, neo-colonial markets uh, uh, across the world, I think I should comment on this. Um, um, in um, patriarchal societies, i.e. basically all of them, um, those people who tend to be pressured um, and conscripted into quote-unquote altruistic, you know, unpaid surrogacies are um, uh, feminized, uh, often racialized or sort of low-status um, members of existing households, sometimes relatives, um, sometimes sort of unwed, um, you know, sisters-in-law, um, whatever. It's not an equitable or sort of uh, consensual uh, playing field. So decommodifying gestational labor um, simply um, isn't necessarily a, a ticket to anything good. In India, for example, um, a lot of the activists around surrogacy are adamant that um, simply banning, you know, pay for surrogacy would, would, wouldn't stop um, the sort of exploitation of low status women in society who would still do it, who would still be doing it, who would still be pressured into doing it um, uh, through the mechanisms of sort of patriarchal expectation and extraction, right? Um, so, it's not to say that you know wages for pregnancy work um, uh, is is a a demand uh, that would make sense, especially in a sort of individual or or or, um, or surrogacy specific context, right? You'd have to expand it to think about how it could explode the current reproduction production integument as a whole in society as a whole. 
Thank you, Sophie, so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Yay, thank you, Rivka. It was great.